The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clear, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also are they than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Kaylin. Well, as promised, we are back for uh, round two in Psalm 19. In case you weren't here last week, we, we took one pass through this already, um, mo- uh, mainly focusing on verses one through six. Um, here's a little bit of a reminder. So the, the overarching theme of Psalm 19 has to do with revelation. And by that, I mean the ways in which God chooses to reveal himself to us. And what I highlighted last week is that there are essentially two primary ways in which God does this. God reveals things to us about himself through what he's created. Um, This is often referred to as general revelation or natural revelation. This is where David begins this psalm in verses 1 through 6 that I just mentioned. This is where we camped out. This was our focus last week. The other primary way that God chooses to reveal himself to us, and this is David's emphasis in verses 7 through 11, is through his word. Through his word. Through uh, what we often refer to as the Bible. God's thoughts, the mind of God, the carefully and perfectly expressed words of God given freely to us and for us. And this is often referred to as special Revelation. This is our focus uh, for this morning. And one obvious question that we might want to um, just tuck into our hats as we proceed um, to take along with us would be how does God's special revelation, his word, differ from 
his general or natural revelation? How do they differ from one another? Here's a very similar question, maybe the same question, just kind of put a different way or coming from a different angle. What makes God's special revelation so special? Like, what's so special about it? So tuck those questions in your hat, carry them with you as, as, as we go forward. And to get us off and running, here's a bit of an outline for you to follow along with. Um, here are three things worth highlighting about God's word from verses 7 through 11. So first off, God's word is paramount. It's paramount, I mean, meaning it's, it's, it's necessary, it's essential, we can't do without it, and so we will explore that first off. Secondly, God's word is profound. Sounds kind of obvious, I guess, but it's profound. And, and what I'm really wanting to get at here as we look at this is the ways in which it works. It's powerful, it's, it's purposeful, as our lives intersect with it. And then lastly, God's word is precious. It's precious. It's valuable. It's costly even. So again, God's word is paramount. It's profound. And it's, it's precious. So to begin with, God's word is paramount. It's necessary. We need it. And... What do I mean by that? And where am I getting that from Psalm 19? That's an important question to ask. Is, is, is that here? And I want to open this um, part up by jumping back into verses 1 through 6 that we looked at last week. Jumping back into um, a bit of review of, of last week's message, if I could. If you'll recall, I was comparing um, the heavens... And the sky above that David talks about in verse 1 here, I was comparing it, as, as strange as this may sound, to like a, a massive cosmic billboard. And what I meant by that is that all that God has made, what he has, has created, is so unmistakably wonderful, isn't it? I mean, on a day like this, it's like hard to deny that. It's, it's dynamic, it's varied, it's vast, it's complex, it's beautiful. We could go on and on. We did this last week. And it's intended to communicate to us. This is what David is telling us here in verses 1 through 6. It, it, it plainly speaks to us. It plainly speaks to us. And I thought that um, along those lines that I would give just a little bit of a report um, to all of you since last Sunday. Um, because I did try to, to put some of these things that we talked about last Sunday into practice. I was, I mean, you know, as a preacher, you've got to practice what you preach, right? So, you know, I, I had some applicational points at the end there. And so, you know, this past week I did, I, I tried to slow down with God's natural revelation, with the beauty of his creation. I tried to slow down with it, look up, look out, to meditate within my heart upon his handiwork. I even tried to write a song. Okay, I'm not going to share it with you. Forget about that. Not happening. But still working on it, actually. But um, admittedly, I was in the most ideal setting to do this. So this came pretty simply, I think. I, uh, because by request, somebody had a birthday in my house this past week, and the request was that we would do a day trip to the ocean, which we did. And for me, the ocean just never disappoints. I mean, there's few things that I like as much is, is going to the ocean. The salty breeze, the sunlight, the relaxing sound of the ebb and the flow of, of the waves, all these like subtle movements that are happening around you, like tides are changing and little sandbars are appearing out of nowhere and these little tide pools 
vastness of the sky, vastness of the ocean makes you feel small um, but comfortable. And I love it. It just never ceases to knock me out. And it powerfully communicates to me about God's glory and his majesty. It reveals knowledge to me, as David puts it, about his power, about his faithfulness, about his authority as the author of all of these things. And hopefully, as I spoke about these things last Sunday, I'm hoping that you heard me speaking about God's natural revelation in very, very positive ways, as I was just trying to do just now. And the reason that I, I was committed to doing that is because this is what I hear David doing in Psalm 19. He's speaking very positively about God's creation. However, having said that, as we now consider the revelation of God's word, the other primary source of revelation, I want to be careful to temper that just a little bit. Temper what I've been saying, not as a way of negating anything that I've said so far, because I don't want to do that. I'm not trying to, you know, pull a reverse or anything like that. But I want to widen the aperture with which we're seeing these things. Because the reason I want to do that is because I believe that as we widen the aperture in our look into God's word, into the Bible, this is what God's word would tell us. That there's more to the story. There's more data that we need to take in. And so I'm going to just have a little bit of a, de a debate with myself, if you don't mind. And um, I'm going to reference, re reference other points of data from God's word as I do this. But what might a counter-argument sound like to the things that I've been saying so far about God's creation? Uh, if I encountered somebody, maybe they might say something to me like this. Hey, Doug, I like your wonderful, majestic thoughts about God's creation, but I hear... And I see other things in nature that don't leave me feeling quite so wonderful as you seem to feel about it. What I observe in the nature of the world and in the nature of humanity is not so encouraging to me. In fact, I find it to be a bit foreboding. What are you talking about? Okay, let me tell you, Tug. For instance, as far as I can tell, everything in everyone eventually dies. What am I supposed to do with that? That's not so wonderful. That's not so majestic. And not only that, but everything in nature, without exception, seems to be somehow on a downward spiral. Everything, everyone is breaking down. It's all aging. It's all becoming unsteady. It's all becoming unsturdy. Nothing is immune to decay. Yes, the sun is faithful to rise every morning, like you said, Doug, but what else in nature is truly dependable? Please, tell me. Other than death, what can I really count on? Now, I would argue that whoever would be, you know, sitting across the table for me, having this argument with me, that they maybe would do well to have like a glass of fresh tea with a lemon squeezed into it, maybe a couple cookies or something like that, you know. Um... And yet, they raise some really good and important points, I think. These are things that we have to take into consideration. Because the world can be a cruel place. People can be cruel. We have to work very hard just to sustain our lives in this world. Not everyone has access to glasses of iced tea with a fresh squeezed lemon and a cookie. The elements 
are a true threat to us. I mean, we really have to um, essentially shelter ourselves from the world. We have to shelter ourselves from the sun. We have to shelter ourselves from the winter. And then on top of all of that, if that's not enough, then there's me. And that creates a whole other category of problems, doesn't it? And we talked about this last week, that ironically, David's immediate response to all of this most wonderful, most majestic, mind-blowing revelation that he encounters was to reflect upon his own sin in his own capacity, his own tendency, the bend of his heart towards sin. Not only do I have to live with the foreboding condition of God's creation, that it's always reminding me that things are breaking down, that it's always in some way or another, if I'm paying attention, reminding me of this trajectory that I'm on that's leading towards death, but I also have to live with myself. I have to live with my own sin. The ways that I fail myself, the way that I fail others, the way that I hurt myself, the way that I hurt others, people I love. And I'm forced to live with the consequences of my sin. I'm left to contend with the inevitable guilt and shame that comes with my sin. And so here are two very practical and important questions that I think that we need to ask as it relates to God's creation. One, despite the truth in what David has told us so far, that the heavens do, they proclaim the glory of God. Like they're majestic, they're wonderful. But despite that, what do we make of this counter argument that frames creation in a very negative light? What do we do with that? Second question, how does God's creation console me? and speak to me in the face of all these terrible realities. What is it? What does God's natural revelation do with me in all of these difficult things that I just mentioned? And some might disagree with me, but I would argue, and I believe that God's word would argue, that it doesn't do anything substantial for me. Not really. It has nothing to say to me in the face of death. It has nothing to say to me in the face of decay and the dark realities of my sin and of the sins of others who have hurt me. A walk on the beach is very refreshing. It's wonderful. It's relaxing. I had a great time with my family this past week, but it can't heal my broken heart. Not really. Not in the ways that it, that it needs healing. It can't teach me how to repair a broken relationship. It can't offer me perspective and hope in the face of death. Only God's word can do this. You see, only God's word can do this for us. And it does. It does all of that and it does so much more. It speaks directly. It speaks specifically, very particularly to all of the things that I've been listing off. It explains to me why God's creation has become so harsh and inhospitable. It explains to me why death and decay are inevitable. It explains the condition of my sin to me. You could say that it interprets me. It explains me to me. You see, it interprets my sin. It interprets all of my deepest longings that often lead me into sin. It interprets all of the hurt and the disorder, not just within me, but all of the hurt and disorder that I see around me. And not just that, God's word also points me places. 
It leads me to hope. It tells me what to hope in. It provides me with understanding and with solutions. It offers me both truth and grace. As wonderful and as majestic as a sunset might be, a sunset can never provide me with these things that I'm talking about. Only God's word can. And for that reason, we must see that God's word is absolutely paramount. It's necessary. It's absolutely, positively essential. We cannot do without it. We need a better word than what creation has to offer us. And it's not that I'm not trying to like pull a fast one on you guys. I had you all excited about God's creation last Sunday. Now you're like, what are you doing, man? Come on. It's not that God's creation is bad. It's not. But it's been corrupted. This is what we learn in the garden in the opening chapters of Genesis. And one day we're told, and we would only know this because God tells us, that God will one day restore it to its rightful state. But even in its most perfect and uncorrupted state, God's creation cannot possibly replace or outdo God's word to us. Okay? There's just a massive difference between these two things. In this, I'll put it like this. Maybe this is helpful. In the same way that my good gifts to my own children could never compare with my words to them, we could think of creation and God's words to us. Because my kids, they need to hear from me, right? They must hear from me. And what I really mean by that is that they need to know me. This is the big idea behind God's words to us. They need to know me. And apart from careful and intentional communication, they can't know me. They can't know my love for them. It doesn't matter how many gifts I give them or how many trips to the ocean I take them. If I never speak to them, if I never express myself to them, I need to draw near to them. I need to speak to them. And in a sense, you could say that God's creation prepares. I'm going to try to reframe God's creation in a more positive light, okay? You could say that God's creation prepares the way for this. It whets our appetites, but it doesn't satisfy them. Artichoke dip. You guys like artichoke dip? I do. No? Okay. I think it's all right. You know what I mean? Um, but what it's supposed to do is to leave us longing for more and better. It's an appetizer. It's supposed to whet our appetites. My apologies to any vegans or vegetarians in the room right now, but what are we hoping is going to come around after the artichoke dip? Meat, right? Sorry. I know that there's at least one person in this room that I'm apologizing to, and they're part of my family. So, steak, grilled chicken, right? And David highlights that according to its original design, God's creation is really, really good. This is what God said about it, right? In the beginning, it is good. It's good. But God's word is great. Because it's God speaking directly to us that we might hear from him, that we might know his thoughts, that we might know his mind, that we might know him. It's paramount. How? How is it paramount? I think it would be helpful to get specific about this. And so this leads us into our second point. God's word is profound. It's profound. 
Please look back with me at verses 7 through 9. David tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, the first thing that I think we should probably notice here is that David is using a whole lot of, of words to describe one thing, which is God's word. I mean, he, he describes God's word here as the law of the Lord, testimonies, precepts, commandments, rules of the Lord. Each of these titles that he's using, they do have their own little nuanced shades of meaning, of course. But if you pile them up, taken as a whole, David is speaking to us about God's carefully and intentionally chosen words to us. His heart and his mind, his instructions and his intentions, his care and his counsel, his words spoken to us and for us for our ultimate good. He freely gives it. And David provides us with descriptors of what these words are like. He also tells us some of the upshot of these things, the benefits, the ways that these things benefit us. But let's start with the, the descriptions. Verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so it's perfect, it's sure, okay? He goes on to say that it's right, it's pure, it's true, it's righteous altogether. This is how he's describing the qualities of God's word as it currently stands in the wake of, of, of the curse, which is the result of our sin, God's creation that we've been talking about is not perfect, okay? It's not sure. It's not quite right. It's corrupted. And as wild as this may sound, it knows it. Like God's creation knows that it's not right. I'll share a little bit with you from Paul as he writes to the church in Rome and he talks about this very thing. He says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. It's like in bondage. Will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's groaning. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. God's creation is not perfect and dependable as it stands, but God's word, David tells us, is different. It's not been affected in these ways as we have and as the world has. It's perfect. It's uncorrupted. It's sure. It's right. It's altogether true. It's altogether righteous, he tells us. I mean, perhaps it's just me, but the, the, the world right now seems more confusing than I ever remember it being over the course of my entire life. I don't know if it's just that I've gotten older and I'm just getting grumpy or that I just am too introspective or too critical, but the, the world just seems very, very troubled 
and troubling to me right now. Like a tall glass of cool water on a scorched hot day, like a spring rain on a parched land, oh, how we need what God's word gives us. It's sure. It's pure. It's altogether righteous. The surety, the dependability of God's perfect and true and undefiled words to us, we can trust in it like nothing else. We can trust in it. And it's not just perfect, it's also purposeful. Listen to how David puts it. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He goes on to tell us that it holds the power and the purpose to cause our hearts to rejoice. What causes your heart to rejoice? It has the power and the purpose of enlightening our eyes, he tells us. God's word is perfect, and yet it's powerful, and it's purposeful. It has an objective, okay? God's word has an agenda. It intends to accomplish that agenda in us as our lives intersect with it. As one author put it, God's word does not merely impart information, it actually creates life. It's not only descriptive, it's effective too. God speaking is God acting. Here's how uh, Martin Luther essentially said the same thing, but he's, he's speaking from his own personal experience of it. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. In other words, God's word is more than like some dead man's journal with good advice in it or something like that. It's alive. It's the words of the living God in pursuit of you. He's out to get you in the best possible way. In pursuit of what? What does he want? He's in pursuit of our attention. He's in pursuit of our affection. He's in pursuit of our allegiances. And therefore, he's in pursuit of a response from us, a response to his word. Do you think of God's word in this way? Is this living thing that is seeking to speak to you in the moment? God speaking to you in the moment with intention is God speaking to you with the desire to bring about meaningful and purposeful actions in your life that will ultimately lead you to him and to a greater knowledge of him. Do you see God's word that way? And in this way, God's word is precious. God's word is precious. So we've considered the fact that God's word is paramount. We need it. We've considered some of the ways in which God's word is profound. It's in pursuit of us. It's powerful. It's purposeful. It has our best intentions in mind. And by that I mean God does. And it's precious. It's precious. This is precisely how David talks about it. Verse 10. More to be desired are they, speaking of the words of God, than gold, even much fine gold, Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So David is like over the moon, clearly, about God's word. He, he, he sounds like he's just discovered a lost treasure or something like that. He sounds like he's just, you know, finished up a meal at some kind of like five-star incredible res restaurant in Manhattan or something. He's giving God's word a five-star review. 
Now, why might that be? And I think that we get a big clue as to why David is so ecstatic about God's word in verse 14. In verse 14, he makes an appeal to the Lord saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So on the one hand, and it's here, we have to acknowledge it. God's word is very practical to David, you know. It's, um, it's helpful. It's, it's providing him with guidance. But that's, for him, it's, that's all just icing on the cake. In fact, that's how he refers to it in verse 11. After giving his five-star review that I just mentioned in verse 10, at the beginning of verse 11, he says, Moreover, in addition to, furthermore, icing, By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. These are all great and praiseworthy benefits for David, but the highest value comes through most loudly and most clearly in verse 14. And we have to see that. The highest value of God's words have to do with the ways that they connect us back to him. They're not a means to an end, unless that end is him. You understand? David is speaking in relational terms as one who has acquired a whole new position. His standing has changed. He's standing on a rock. He has firm footing, and his footing is the Lord. And he's been redeemed. He's been purchased. He has a whole new identity. He's been bought back. He belongs to the Lord. How else would he know this if God wouldn't have spoken to him, by the way? How else would he know this? How else would he know to look for a redeemer? How else would he know where to go to look to find one if God had not spoken to him? You can't read these things in the stars, you see? And something worth pointing out along these lines, this psalm has three main parts to it. Each part of this psalm has to do with words. We've been talking about this. Verses 1 through 6 is about these like unspoken words that we get as we look out into God's creation. Verses 7 through 11 are all about God's revelation, God's word that he's given to us. But then in verse 14, it's David's response to all of that. I've seen and I've heard your words, Lord, in your creation and in your written revelation, and now let the words of my mouth. So he's now he's just like, okay, how is this all going to affect my words? Let, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In closing, I think it's absolutely essential that we once again widen our aperture and get a bigger view of God's word get a bigger view of the trajectory of what we encounter here in Psalm 19 that David's highlighting here. How does God's word become most sweet? How does it become most precious of all? When do we see it in its sweetest state? And this is where we got started, isn't it? I mean, please look back at at, uh, your call to worship. Look back at your call to worship. This all comes from the Gospel of John that we've spent a bunch of time in. 
And the first, if I could call it a nickname, the first nickname that Jesus is given in John's gospel is the word. This is a Greek word. It means, the Greek word is logos. It essentially means the embodiment of an idea. Jesus became the embodiment. God's word in the flesh for us. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then further down, John tells us that this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What should this mean to us? What should this mean to us? It, it means that he, he was not content to stand at a distance. He didn't create and speak and then just check out on us. Like, hey, wish you the best, everybody. He came. He spoke the word to us, and as the living word, he drew near to us and made the word of God understandable to us. He made it physical. He made it personal. He entered into our cosmic dread. He entered into our cosmic decay, all of our existential anxieties. He entered into all of that, and he tasted the death that we all fear, and he did it intentionally to make the word alive to us. So it's Jesus, coming back to Psalm 19, it's Jesus that preserves me. It's Jesus that purifies me. It's Jesus that makes me righteous. It's Jesus that gives me an identity because he is the perfect and righteous word of God. I love this quote from Dorothy L. Sayers. So it's got a little humor to it even, I think. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. You get what she's saying, right? Jesus subjected himself to everything that we are subjected to. Everything that you have ever encountered that has ever troubled you, Jesus willingly submitted himself to that. She goes on to say, he has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life, <laughs> there's the humor, and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and through it, and thought it, I'm sorry, and thought it well worth while. Why would he think it well worthwhile? We sang about it. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious. In his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. The word is precious because 
he's come to us and said, you're precious. Isn't this how the best relationships work? Isn't this how love thrives? The word should be precious to us because we are so precious to him. Bought by him at such a cost. Let me pray. Father, we thank you uh, for all of the abundance of the ways that you have gone way out of your way to show us yourself. God, we can be so spiritually dull and just think that there's just nothing to speak to us, to tell us that you're real, that you exist, that you care, and yet you've provided so much. You've given us this spectacular universe. You've given us written words, and you've given us your son. And he's shown us who you are. He's shown us the degree to which you care for us by laying his life down for us. And we give thanks for these things. God, we pray that you would um, stoke our hearts, that you would fan the flame of faith in our hearts, that we would hunger and thirst for your word, that it would be sweeter than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb to our soul. Would you feed us these things? Would you enhance our appetite for these things? To your glory and to our benefit, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>